0: Welcome back to all of our listeners. Here on Raising Up Cops, we aim to bring up a variety of topics that we find particularly challenging as Coptic people outside of Egypt. And we especially want to focus on how to handle these situations with our kids.
1: Yes, Laura, exactly. And sometimes we have things that we share that just show us we're not alone, right? But then we have topics like today, which are current, very popular topics. That seemed to be a topic that many of our kids are hearing and they're listening to everywhere they go. So we are so excited today to bring on a very special guest, Phoebe Farag-Mikhail, who is the author of the wonderful book, Putting Joy into Practice. She is an educator and advisor to the Oriental Orthodox Solidarity Project,
0: is an activist and runs the Being in Community blog. I was at the convent this past weekend and everybody standing in line had a copy of Putting Joy into Practice. It was really hard not to be like, I know her, I know her. (laughs) And being in community is exactly what we want to focus on today. What does it mean to love our neighbors? What does it mean to like the golden rule to treat others the way we want to be treated, especially in the context of current events? So Phoebe, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Madonna.
0: (laughs) Phoebe, I am always impressed
1: when I see your posts and I see your comments and your talks. You have such a wonderful way of speaking to others, especially when they disagree with you. You're just really, really good at being respectful and factual. And I think a lot of that comes from your background. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about how you became an activist and what does that mean exactly to be an activist?
2: So um, I probably became aware of... um, Of what's going on in the world, so to speak, from a very early age. It probably helped that when we were in the car, my father would drive us back and forth to school. And we would the only radio station he would be on is NPR. And so NPR. Yeah. I became quite aware of different things going on in the world. And you know, growing, I think all of us growing up as immigrants always have had a little bit of a of a global perspective on life where we are attuned to what's happening here in front of us but we're also attuned to what's happening in Egypt and the Middle East and uh, elsewhere Um, and so that gives us like a little bit of a wider perspective on things Um, but I would say I really got involved when I started doing um, well I would say I really got interested in becoming involved when I went to Kenya um, and Tanzania on a mission trip and I Uh, got engaged kind of firsthand with um, uh, the way people live in the world. And I, you know, as I said, I was aware, but I saw it. And um, I I remember being placed in this position where um, I was asked to uh, speak, uh, do like a women's Bible study. And here I was about 19, 20 years old, I think. And I was sitting with a group of women who some of them were probably double my age. And one of them asked me a question that I couldn't that I, that I spent, day, you know, I, till, till now, I still think about this question. She had said, and I hope this is podcast. It's for parents to listen to, but don't listen to it with your kids. Um, she had said, what if you are married and you're, um, uh, you can't have children. So your husband beats you and then he gets a second wife. Oh, wow. and, um, and I was sitting there like, Oh, 19 year old me really, you know, <laughs> I can say, Oh yes, well you can divorce him and leave him because he's betrayed you. And, you know, I could be, you know, use, principles but then which, when she leaves him, where does she go? How does she support herself? you know how is she going to be an outcast in society because she left her husband like there's all these other factors that i couldn't cleanly answer in a black and white um, uh, response and so um i don't remember what I actually said, but i remember I probably said something like that, <laughs> but I remember leaving saying uh, I remember leaving there thinking there are a lot of I really need to do something about this. there's a lot of things that need to be done and I feel like I'm called to do it and so I actually kind of diverted my path from I was actually I was doing my teacher certification and um, and I kind of turned, you know diverted my path a little bit and decided to go into international development with focusing on education And so from there I started getting, in uh, getting involved both for voluntarily and then professionally um, in work with uh, impoverished people and marginalized people in the world. And then eventually that work actually did end up taking, uh, you know, I did a lot of uh, work in Egypt um, with girls. And eventually I, that took the turn into like officially advocacy. I started working at Amnesty International, what what you, people would call advocacy or activism, right? I started looking for Amnesty International. And then at um, I Plan, I was also involved in governance and participation. Um, and so I, um, uh, and so, <clears throat> but even when I left kind of the, uh, when I started having kids and I left that jet setting, you know, <laughs> um, lifestyle where it was like a lot of work, traveling, training people, doing lobby days in Congress and um, on different you know, uh, topics. Uh, I eventually settled into um, right now what I'm doing, which is a little bit more about, um, like Ma- Madonna was saying, raising awareness, having conversations. Also my work with the Oriental Orthodox Solidarity Project. This is um, uh, a lay people collaborative of members of the different oriental orthodox uh, communions working specifically on the topic of racism and fighting racism outside our churches in our uh, communities and also uh, fighting racism where we see it in our um, communities. So um, that's um, uh, something I'm doing that's important and also I'm still working on things related to poverty and education because I'm also a board member on a foundation called the Michelle Seuss Foundation which if you read putting joy into practice you'll know who she is it's in the um it's in the uh what is joy uh chapter and so I won't give it away I just gonna have to read it in the book <laughs> <laughs> I love that <laughs> and I think one more thing which is probably what we're going to talk about today a lot of it also has to do with what I talk about and work uh with my children
0: Yeah, so how can we as a family work together to learn to love our neighbors better? Is there anybody we can emulate or people we can look to um, as an example of Orthodox Christians who really love their neighbor in action?
2: Okay, so let's first go back to loving our neighbor. Where that comes from, and that comes from the Gospels. So it actually comes from before the Gospels too, right? It's in the Commandments, right? Love your neighbor as yourself, and it beca- it is the really the second it, when when Christ uh, meets the rich young man and uh, tells him this. You know, what do you uh, you know? What are the two most important commandments, right? Or is it no? This is what the, the Pharisees ask him, and they uh, what is the most important commandment? He said, you you know, it's love of the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And then they ask him, who is our neighbor? And then of course we know the story. It's the story of the good Samaritan. And I'm not going to repeat the story, but what I will say is the fact that Christ chose the Samaritan to be the neighbor is the, the thing that the big, the big thing that, that shines out to me. He chose somebody who was different, who was despised. Um, and he became the neighbor who helped the, uh, The Jewish person who was um who was injured and on the road Mm -hmm. and it just says to me that what he really what he's saying is our neighbor is literally anybody including Mm -hmm. the people that are very different from us that we might even uh despise and he said it shows this again actually I was just thinking about this in uh, the book of Jonah where Jonah does not want to go to Nineveh because he hates them Mm -hmm. he hates those people like you know, if you want to talk about prejudice, this was like beyond prejudice. This was like, I hate them and I I want them all to die. And he even says so because he go, God forces him to go. He says, I don't care if you hate them. I love them. And he takes them, takes Jonah to Nineveh. And, and after Jonah preaches his three words (laughs) or so, or is it five words? um, They all repent. And Jonah says to God, see, I knew it was going to happen. You were going to be compassionate and loving and you were not going to kill them all.
1: (laughs) Oh my goodness.
2: (laughs) And and I just love that line where he's like so angry that God was so compassionate because he hated them. And it was God saying, it doesn't matter. And even though you hate them, I'm still going to use you to send them my message and they are going to repent. Hmm. And so, you know, of course we have many more biblical examples that we can uh, point to, but these are, um, you know, the ones I would go to. And then from there, I think um, we can also look back on our church history. And we have so many examples of what it means to love our neighbor in church history. Uh, we have uh, some of the early fathers. We have uh, St. John Chrysostom. Um, and you can read, uh, he has there's a collection of his homilies on the rich man and Lazarus, it's called On Wealth and Poverty. And then there is St. Basil, who, uh, wrote, uh, who wrote a collection of homilies put together called On Social Justice and Saint Basil, along with Saint Marina, his um, older sister, and his brother Saint Gregory, and but this is the Saint Basil whose liturgy we pray. This is our mm-hmm. Saint Basil, right? <laughs> so they actually put a lot of what they said um, about uh, about their about what they preached about poverty into direct practice, and they created a community. They called it. It's in history they called the Basiliad. And it was literally they were very wealthy family, and they took their lands and their homes, and they converted them into these uh, almost almost quasi monastic communities. There there was a women's like section, and there was a men's section, and the servants lived equally with the um, owners, and they all lived very ascetic lives. They shared all the the wealth. They took care of each other. Um, when Saint Macrina, Saint Macrina was considered actually the kind of spiritual head of that um, community. And when she died, there was like, St. Gregory of Nyssa has her, wrote her life and mentioned that when she died and he asked if she had another cloak he, they could put on her for her funeral and they the servants said, no, there's nothing. Mm. Look in her closet, there's nothing. What she had was what she had and that was that. Um, so, you know, they, we can read about their histories. There's also St. Uh, Pachomius who became converted to Christianity because the Egyptians loved him as his neighbor. He came, he was there as a soldier and the Christians in Thebes, they welcomed him and his army and they fed him and they clothed him and that turned him into a Christian. <laughs> and then he started the Pahomian monasteries which ended up changing Christianity around the world because eventually the West actually got its community monasticism uh, from St. Pichomius's rule. Um, and, uh, and so similarly, St. Shinuti, the right, um, also preached very much about, uh, about issues of wealth and poverty and, um, and treating others as we would ourselves. And he, uh, he, his, he, was very, he had another federation of monasteries and he was very keen on his, the monastery was meant to give to the community. And anytime the monastery had any wealth, they would give it to the community. But if we wanted to go like to something more modern and closer to us today, um, the best, I, I mean, we can keep going. Like we had St. Marina and St. Maurice, right? We have all these other, we can keep going all through the centuries, right? But if we want to do something, go to somebody more modern, we can consider St. Abraham, the Bishop of Fayoum, whose, um, whose name is the friend of the poor. Like mm. that's, his, that's his title, right? St. Bishop, St. Abraham, Bishop of Fayoum, the friend of the poor. Um, and I loved it. I actually watched his, there's a movie about him on, and it's available on YouTube. I remember watching this movie as a kid, um, when it was on VHS. <laughs> now you know how old I am. Um, and, uh, and it's actually one, one of the oldest, but still one of the best made Coptic saint movies out there. Um, and so I was watching it with my, uh, with my kids and, you know, because sadly the YouTube, that, that's available now that you can stream doesn't have subtitles. There may be one out there. Maybe there's one on CYC that I couldn't find. But um, the one that we watched didn't have subtitles. So I was like helping them to, uh, you know, helping it along if they didn't understand something to explain. Um, but we know, everybody knows the story of Saint Abram. He was so radically a giver to the, he did not, it wasn't just like giving to the poor and that's, no, he he com- he recognized the way all of us need to recognize when we think about loving our neighbors, that every single person is made in the image of God. And so when he treated the poor, it wasn't just about giving charity. It was about dignity. He treated the bo- poor when he's friend of the poor, it was friend of the poor. You know, when we say brethren of the Lord, sometimes they say it in Arabic, and it's become almost a term. But if you look at the term, the ter- brothers of the Lord, these people are... Jesus Christ's brothers and sisters right so this is like something he took in its real and literal uh, literal way and he was very much about treating the poor not just with financially but also with dignity and there's this one scene that's just amazing in this movie um and it's the scene where um uh i guess it's the the feast and uh um right yes and uh and Everybody's coming to eat at the motroneya, having a meal at the motroneya. And uh, there are two cooks and one of the cooks, he has a mustache. Um, the bishop is talking to the two cooks because they bring him um, some hamam and some chicken or something and they're like saying And he's like, no, you just take that and go give it to the, to the, to the, um, to the, the poor people um, that are eating with us. And they're, they're like, and then he says to the cook with the mustache, he said, I've been hearing some complaints about you um not treating uh everybody well um kind of what's going on with that and the guy says no 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 say i treat everybody equally may god blind me if i um if i don't uh if that's not true Mm -hmm. and so sadhana says okay may god uh may god um expose the liar that's what he says in the movie and um then uh the next scene the the cook is in a room with the poor, and he's handing them plates, and the people are like, "Where is? We don't see any. This is barely a piece of meat. This is a piece of fat." And they're like, and it's cold." And the man yells at them, and he's like, "You beggar! What do you, you know? Why do you care? And who am I? Am I working underneath you to go heat and and uh, your, uh, keep going in and heating your food and cooling your food and heating your food?" And he shouts at them, and Sayyidna hears it from the other door. So he goes in and he says, "Huh." You said you didn't see and he says uh-huh so who did you serve the meat to the 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 the, the poor families and here are the the rich parishioners over there and he said um i gave it to the rich parishioners and he said okay you no longer have a job at this maternia." and he um uh and then there's a scene of laughter all the poor people are laughing at him and and then one of the poor people says here's heat this up for me and he oh angry and 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 walks away right and, leave, and leaves angry and walks away. The next scene, he comes back to Seidna and he's blind.
0: Because oh, remember okay.
2: what he said. Yeah. May God blind me. And mm-hmm. so he's coming to Seidna this time repenting because he realized the error of his ways. And Seidna um, makes a sign of the cross on him and says, if your repentance is true, God will give, ba- give you back your sight. Now, word to the wise. Big warning. There is a, not- a scene directly after this scene where there's like, um uh something that might be disturbing to younger (laughs) children (laughs) i don't want to give it away but i'm just letting you know if you wanted to watch the scene as soon as he makes the sign of the cross pause if you have your children can handle you know um because what happens is there somebody gets murdered and his body is found in the motronea and you kind of they you know they see that um and uh and so you you might want to if you have sensitive children who are going to (laughs) be are going to be shocked by that you might want to um to pause, to you know, pause it right after that. or fast forward really quick. <laughs> right
1: after Thank that. you for that very, very needed warning <laughs> for those of us with kids. Um, but you know, you brought up Jonah, um, who actually hated the people that he was supposed to help, and I really love that example. And in the other example that you were giving in the movie that he was—he really didn't even realize that he was blind to like his own prejudice against these people. He didn't even realize it. Um, and I think. It's easier in many ways to sympathize with the poor, the widow, the orphan and all of that. Right. And we help all of these people, not even if we agree, but out of obedience to God. Mm -hmm. Um, But when there are differences, one that we say is against God or if I, I won't get into specific details, you all can use your imaginations and fill in the blanks. But the overall message here is that we want to treat everyone according to the image of god in them right whether or not we agree whether or not we are on the same side as them or whatever the case may be can you speak a little
2: bit more on that okay so this is really important because this is orthodoxy in orthodoxy our theology is really about the fact that every single human being was made in the image of god and this is what we were made to be and we have the theology of saint athanasius in on the incarnation where he gives us that beautiful analogy that we use a lot where he says we are, are the it's like a painting that was beautiful. Mm. and it got uh, d- uh, uh, deteriorated and destroyed over time. and the only one that can restore the painting to its original glory is the original artist. right mm. And so this is his analogy of God, Christ's incarnation, right? That Christ, in order to return us, the only one who can return us to the image is God himself right? And this was specifically an answer to the Arians who said that Christ was not, was like a lesser God. No, he is God. He is the one that's going to restore the image because he's the first, he's the one who created it. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God, right? He is the one who did it in the first place. He is, so, so with this in mind, that this means everybody is made in the image of God, no exception. Mm. Um, and this is when we talk about like a lot of the saints, when they talk about the, uh, you know, the poor, we have to also recognize that that was, and it still is, but that was the big issue of the day. And mm-hmm. when we think about, when we think about the poor right now, because we kind of live in a slightly, no, not completely, I would, you know, here in the U.S., we don't have, uh, classism is an issue, but it's not as big a deal here, but in ancient times, and in Egypt, classism is kind of, it's kind it's, you know, you could compare it to what racism is in the U.S. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Nice. So when you're talking about the poor, you're not talking about people who are just down and out on their luck and they don't have enough money. And if they get enough money, they'll be fine. No, no, no. This is a class of people, right? These are people that are supposed to be there and you can, make sure they don't suffer too badly. You can give them charitable works and don't suffer too badly, but don't let them ever, they can't ever, they can't actually ever be, even if they had all the money in the world, they couldn't ever be higher than the next class, so to speak. Hmm. Um, and this was a, an issue in, you know, in ancient, um, in ancient times and it continues, uh, until now. And so, uh, to a degree, um, but, Whenever we see what pe- what our the, the fathers uh, and the mothers of the church say about the poor, um, is what we can say about anyone who is um, marginalized in any way, if not impoverished financially, um, impoverished in some other way, um, mm-hmm. either experiencing lots of prejudice, um, you know, um, suffering because of uh, of what they are in some way that others are not. Um, having less privilege than, uh, than other people, um, this would be the poor. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, And that's, that's important to to note, because, you know, like I said, it, it, it isn't, we sometimes read these works with our mindset, but sometimes we have to kind of put ourselves back in their mindset to fully, um, to fully get it. And so there are times when I read St. Basil and I say, okay, yeah, this definitely this definitely applies to um, this situation, even if it's not direct, d- specifically about financial poverty.
1: I so love the way that there. you shifted that frame of reference to redefining mm-hmm. what is who is poor. Really, it's not just poor financially, though that is part of the category, but poor um, emotionally, socially, just by being marginalized so much in our communities
2: today. I love mm-hmm. that. Thank you, Phoebe. Yeah, yeah, and it just we, it all brings it back to one thing: everybody is made in the image of God. We have a responsibility to treating every single person with the, dig- the same kind of dignity that St. Abraham treated the poor in his, uh, in his uh, diocese. That's the kind of dignity we have to treat every single human person, which is to say that they're no different from me.
1: I remember that in the Philip Mamalakis book, Parenting Toward the Kingdom, when he was saying treating your children, each of your children as an icon of Christ. But yeah, we could extrapolate that as every person is an icon of Christ. So that's, um, that's really helpful. Thank you.
0: So you had mentioned to me an episode of uh, a show on Kuji TV that really brought to light that idea of like the way the poor can be, um, the way the poor can be viewed um, Mm -hmm. in Egypt, but also like uh, across the the world, I would say. you know, when you were talking, I was thinking about how we were just learning, I'm teaching AP history, um, world history this year. And we were talking about the enlightenment and we were talking about how you know, the idea that all men are created equal is very, very new. It's actually a new idea and that before that, it, you know, caste systems were were not just in India. They were in, in different forms in many different countries. The idea that like the poor are, like you said, supposed to be here, that they're not actually created equal, you know, in that way of thinking. So I would love to hear more about this episode because, you know, we we went to look it up and I think you're going to share the link with us. But um, I kind of want you to give it away a little bit. Um, this is this sure. TV episode that was so good. Yeah, sure. And,
2: and but just to give a quick example before we get there, like a really easy way to see how this works is if you read something by Jane Austen and you see why people when they are looking for marriages, they have to marry within their class. They might be able to marry up a little bit, but they definitely don't want to marry down, so to speak. And definitely they have to be landed gentry. They can't be labor like laborers were another group altogether right? So, you know, servants were another group altogether. There was no such thing as having a relationship <laughs> with any of these, uh, uh, groups of people, right? If you read, that's like a, another example of like another era where this is, um, the case, but yes. So going to kuji TV, there is a series and I believe one season of the series does have English subtitles, if you can find it. And it's called in English, they call it emergency si- situation. Um, I believe that the, 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 way it, if you look it up in YouTube, Kuji TV emergency situation, you might be able to, to find it. Um, but it's a, a, a basically a family. Uh, there's a mom and a dad. There's a grandpa that, that sometimes is in there and sometimes not. And then there's three children, um, two girls and a boy. Um, the older girl is probably like high school age. The boy may be middle school age and the little girl is like, you know, somewhat younger elementary, right? Or maybe like five or six or seven, something like that. And so they kind of they kind of just go through life and they, you know, might argue with each other. There might be issues they face outside of the home and they come home and they talk about it, right? And then um, when they have these issues or their conflicts and they still don't really know how to deal with it, they make a phone call to Sayyidna. And Sayyidna is specifically Sayyidna and Bamurus in um in chema And, uh, and it's, they literally do, they either call him up on the phone, they send him a text message or they FaceTime him. (laughs) And every time he says, all right, you have this problem, all right, come to me at the ternaya, come see me in the church, and we'll talk about it. And then they go and then uh, they go to talk to him about it. And then usually he responds to the question by finding a, uh, talking about a Bible story. um, And then explaining how that Bible story uh, applies to their uh, concern and then they pray together and then that's it. So every episode is like 15 to 20 minutes. Um, and you know, everything is tidally resolved in those minutes, of course, but it's just a great, like, you know, and everyone is different. There's one about boundaries. There's one about, um, uh, oh, I, I you know, I could go on but there's one in particular and it was called Respecting Others. And this episode um, had two main kind of scenes. In the first scene, there is the uh, the garbage collector. The Zabel comes to the door to collect the family's garbage. Right? Remember, this is in Cai- this is probably in Cairo, and um, and so the and the mom hears the Zabel knocking on the door and tells her daughter, "Go, hand him the garbage." So the little girl, the younger one, hands it to him, and it drops and it falls, and the garbage is everywhere. And she shuts the door and leaves him to pick up the trash. Then the mom comes down and She's like, what's all this ruckus outside? And then uh, what, what, what happened? I heard some ruckus outside. What was going on? And this girl says to her, well, I dropped the garbage. And she said, well, what happened? Did you help him put, pick it up? And she said, no, no, no. I left him to pick it up. And she's like, why? And she's like, well, isn't he the garbage guy? You know, that's trash. Like he's the trash person. And the mom says to her, no, 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 no. He has a job and we have our jobs. That's his job. He's not any better or worse than you. Um, and he actually is not the garbage person. We're the ones who made the garbage. He's taking the garbage from us and helping us keep clean. And so, um, and you know, this part, you know, little girl says, so mommy, everybody is the same. And yes, happy, everybody is the same. And that one gets resolved easily. Then the next scene though, is the older girl comes home uh, from, angry from like play practice at church. They have a theater group or a Sunday school where they're doing a play and they're at church and they're practicing and um she's really angry and upset when she gets home and so her parents are like what's what's going on and so she it's her she sits with her father and she tells her father i you know i was we were practicing for the play and then my teacher the the teacher brought in these two new students um and they're uh she, she they're uh they, they're from there she says she mentions that they're african um probably sounding to me like they're probably sudanese um and uh, and he says and she says they're African and her father says yeah so we're from Africa we're African and uh, she says no 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 not like us you know like the the you know the, the, they they look different and he's like okay so they're Southern from the Sub-Saharan Africa probably Sudanese right and and he and she says uh, and she put her to be the princess of the play. Mm-hmm. How, how can it be? Can, and, and her father's like, and her father was listening and listening. he says, you know, you're wrong, Habitie, you're wrong um, to be upset about this. The teacher can choose the best person for the role. And she chose her to be the best person for the role. It doesn't matter uh, what she looks like. And so the girl is not convinced. She goes to her room and she even says something like, is it possible that there can be a black princess? And, you know, she kind of is fighting with herself about this issue. And then she finally says, the only one who can help me with this is Seidna. So she gives Saidna a call and Seidna says, come on over. And so he, she tells the story to Saidna, and then Seidna uh, listens and he tells her, okay, well, First, you have to understand that people look different because in the, in back in the days of Noah, when his three sons went to different parts of the world, they eventually adjust their, their bodies and their skin tone eventually adjusted to the places that they went to. So some places they needed a darker skin tone because of, there was more sunlight and some places they needed lighter skin tone because there was less. So the, it, how they look it has everything to do with where they're from and nothing to do with uh, anything else. Um, and then number two, you're wrong because you think that you are good at everything and, um, and that you're better <laughs> than other people and you're not. And, you know, she's sitting there like, yes, Sydney, you're right. <laughs> she just took it like a, like a, <laughs> like a, champ. <laughs> like a champ. And, um, you know, he, he responds to that, that point about, no, everybody is the same. Your teacher is right to have chosen the best person for the park has nothing to do with how they look. Um, and this is just a great, I mean, if you are able to show this to your kids at any point, if they can't, you know, if you can't understand English, here's the, here's the general idea. Uh, I mean, sorry, if they can't understand Arabic, you know, here's the general idea. You can kind of get it from there. But I will say that if you do understand just a little bit of Arabic, the, the, the conversations are not like hard to, um, to get, you follow. Know, they're everyday, yeah. yeah, they're not hard to follow. They're pretty much everyday Arabic. Um, nothing too difficult because it is the Kuji TV, the kids channel. So. But that tells you how much
1: the world is changing, that even in Egypt, they're starting to air these very, um, I guess they used to be hot topics, but, you know, now they're starting to realize that these are things we need to address. This is becoming a problem. You know, there's so many prejudices against um, one another that we need to kind of tackle. And um, Phoebe, like, I I love the way you're saying that, you know, we treat everybody the same and we, we love them because God loves them. Um, But inevitably, we are going to be on the other end of that sometimes we are going to be the ones that are treated unjustly in some way or we're going to witness our children being treated unjustly in some way and it's going to break our hearts. It's going to be very painful for us. So I guess the question really is, how do we respond if we see it happening or if we are the ones that it's happening to or what do we do in those situations?
2: Well, I think the first thing is we have to get ready for that because we know it's going to happen. Um, first of all, they are going to witness it um, with other people, um, and they may experience it themselves. And it is a topic that is in constant discussion. If they turn on the news, they're going to hear about it. And so, this is um, this is something that it should be something ongoing, an ongoing conversation um, that we have. And one of the the best ways um, that we can do this besides, you know, you know, there are the videos I mentioned, but one of the best ways to do this is through books and especially picture books. And we are in this golden age of picture books. Um, the books that are around now were not around when we were kids. Mm. There are just some, I mean, and the best thing about picture books too, is that you can always, as a parent, you can read them really quickly in advance to make sure they work for your family. Um, and, uh, and then through them, you can have lots of conversations, um, about, about treating others the way you want them, you know, you would want to be treated, and then similarly, what to do in situations where, um, where you're not, where you might be the person um, not being treated well. And um, there are, um, I, if, if uh, on my blog I have a, uh, a, a Great Lent children's book guide where I, there's a guide where you can um, you can download it, and it has recommendations of picture books for the whole season um, according to the readings. And a few of those books, uh, touch upon these topics, like, um, uh, some of them about poverty, some about racism. So there's like a bike, uh, a bike like Sergio's is one, um, uh, let me go through this, uh, Stone Soup is one definitely about being neighborly and being hospitable to, uh, to people from the outside, so to speak. Uh, there's, um, I'm just giving you some titles, but you can, you can just direct people to the, to the guide and they will be able to see them. And then there's, um, those shoes and there's Desmond and the very mean word. And then there's another book that's not in the list, but that I recently read with my kids and I just love this story. And it is by somebody named Sharon Langley and it's called a ride to remember, Mm -hmm um and this if you're going to pick a book to talk about like how people respond to prejudice and racism and things like that this is such a great book because it is um it touches on something really uh accessible to children all, in all situations which is like being able to play at an amusement park and on ride a merry-go-round and so the book covers the civil rights movement and it talks about it because what happened is There was a, you know, it takes place during the civil rights movement. And what happened is the the movement towards desegregation succeeded except in this one amusement park in Maryland. And um, in this amusement park, they still would not allow, they would not allow uh, any uh, black people to go and enjoy the rides and have like a family picnic and eat some sweets or anything like that. And so in the story, she kind of goes over, like what are the things that people did? And they were all, and in the book, what I love about it too, is that she, that she, she's the little, the author herself is the little girl in the book and her parents are telling her the story of what happened before, because um, you'll find out later. Um, So the parents, uh, uh, the girl says, why wouldn't they let us, ride the carousel. And the parents said, because some people they're you know, and there's some people just don't know the golden rule that you should treat other people the way you would have them treat you. Um, and uh, so she, you know, she says, all right, well, she, she says, all right. And so what are the things that they do to be able to change this and allow people to get on the, the carousels? Well, one thing they do is they have, they have protests and people get together and they stand outside peacefully and they uh, protest that the park won't allow people in. Another thing they do is, and this is a black and white family start attending these protests. Then another thing that they do is um, some civil disobedience where where, uh, they actually try to go uh, buy tickets um, and then people get arrested. And actually one very effective thing that happened is one uh, white family got arrested and the photograph of these three boys in the back of a police car went viral on the news media and people were horrified all over the country. Like, why would you arrest kids for wanting to play at an amusement park? That was the, like, that was the, the kind of the public outrage that came about this. And, uh, and if you read the end of the book, the book still goes on, they talk about those boys and when they grow up and they're still like working on different things like climate change and all that stuff. Um, but anyway, so, uh, and then one of the tests was they actually had a family that was uh, that was black, but they passed as white because in those days, it didn't matter what you looked like. If you had one drop, that was the rule. That was Jim Crow. If you had one drop, you were considered black. But this family didn't look it, and so they bought tickets and just went in and did the rides, and nobody noticed, and then some a journalist covered them and said, see like, see how ridiculous this is, <laughs> right? So finally, the, uh, they, the, the rule was changed because of all this. The rule was changed, and everybody could do the park, and the author was the very first family to buy a ticket and enter the park with it desegregated and she gets the very first ride of the carousel and this carousel actually is now this was in maryland but then there was like a storm that destroyed a lot of the park the carousel was still intact this carousel is actually now on the national mall in front of the smithsonians it, mo- it was i moved- didn't
1: know that was the one
2: that's yeah. so cool that's like yeah. right down the street from me yep <laughs> and there's a there's a plaque there telling the story and the horse that she rode it's on one of the hoofs. It's written, her name, Sharon uh, Langley. So the book is by Sharon Langley. Um, wow. So, and then she goes back to the golden rule and actually that ticket, I think her mother actually keeps in her, but her grandmother keeps in her Bible in the place where the golden rule is written. So wow. this is like so beautiful because it's just, it, it covers kind of a lot of, you know, history. and by the way, Sharon Langley is like, you know, I met her actually at a, <laughs> at a, I was so excited at a children's book um, uh, uh, class that I was taking and she was, um, she was there. And so, uh, you that know, That tells you how
1: recent this is. This is
2: recent. Yeah. Yeah. Quite that, recent. That's painfully yeah. recent. My goodness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And so if you get the book, you'll see like a lot of the, you see a picture of her visiting the carousel when she's an adult and they have a family reunion over there um, at the Smithsonian's. So that's like a really, um, a really good one to just co- kind of cover uh, how, you know, the different ways in which we can work towards making, you know, living the golden rule and loving our neighbor. There's different ways that we can work together to do that. Um, and the, and the ways in which those, the, 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 the ways that they did this were all peaceful, nonviolent and Christian based. Um, so, um, so, and then, so there's another book that is on the, uh, the, uh, um, the, the children's book guide that I mentioned and it's called Desmond um, Desmond and the Very Mean Word and in this case this takes k- place in apartheid South Africa um, and wow. this Desmond is actually Desmond Tutu, Archbishop Desmond Tutu when he's a child so when he was a child he had uh, he, was, uh, he, he it was a true story where he was called a very mean word by a group of boys and the text doesn't say this but the pictures show that these were mean white boys they call him a very mean word they don't actually say what the word is you can probably imagine what that might be um and he was sh- on his way to show his new bike to his friend father trevor but he's up father trevor he's upset and he says what happened he tells him what happens father trevor, sa- trevor says well are you ready to forgive them and he says no i'm not ready mm-hmm. and um in fact he then he wants to get back to get them and then he actually does he sees he he uh sees them at some point, and he calls. One of them, there was one, one of them was red-haired and he calls them a mean word. And then he doesn't feel any better about it. In fact, the story tells that he feels a heavier weight than the weight of his anger on him, right? So then one day he passes through town and he's, and I'm sorry to give you all the spoilers, but you know, if you're gonna read these with your kids, you're gonna have to know what's in the story, right? (laughs) Um, So he he passes through town and he sees one of the boys who called him a mean word being mistreated by his older brother and his mother yelling from inside that he was just as bad as his father, to stop hurting his little brother, he's just as bad as his father. And that scene alone kind of just opens um, little Desmond's eyes that this is, this boy is mean because his brother is being mean to him and his father is being mean to him. So there's something happening that's bigger than this boy and his being mean, right? This is, there's a generational thing happening. And so later, Desmond meets the boy at the market, the red haired boy at the market. And he apologizes to him first for calling him a mean word. And then before the boy even gets a chance to answer, like, or even asks, he forgives the boy before he asks of calling him a mean word in the first place. And then at the very last page, you see this picture of Desmond riding his bike with his hands like flung wide as if he's flying. And it just shows the freedom of forgiveness. And of course, you know, later he becomes Archbishop Desmond Tutu. He becomes instrumental in the ending the apartheid regime and then instrumental in leading the community spiritually to reconciliation and coming together as a a country after some, you know, such a bloody and difficult civil war. And so that's yet another, and, and I love it because it's also just something simple that all of our kids can get. Somebody calling you a mean word Mm saying somebody's calling you something mean and what do you do about this and does retaliating in the same way actually help you know and then he just demonstrates that no it doesn't it actually makes you feel worse what's a better way um i have
1: yet to see anybody that is a wealth of knowledge on literature like you phoebe i think we could have you on 25 more episodes just talking about all the books that you could recommend And about this in particular, about all these topics um, that revolve around race and around all these issues that can be a little hard to discuss with our kids. Sometimes we might think they're too young, they're too whatever, but I, I don't necessarily agree with that. So I appreciate you coming on and starting this conversation. And we just want to encourage that we can bring up hard topics with our children. You know, we have examples, so many examples of those who have gone before us and our church fathers and the saints and all these resources available at our fingertips. We have the power to elicit change simply by encouraging our kids and teaching them that we're all made in the image of God. And our love is out of obedience to him, if
0: not from our own hearts. So Mm -hmm. thank you, Phoebe, for coming on and just talking about this with us. Yeah, thank you so much, Phoebe, for joining us. And um, thank you all for listening to Raising Up Cops. We would love it if you rated this podcast and gave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you're listening in. And you can send us feedback at RaisingUpCops at gmail.com. Raising Up Cops is a production of Coptic Dad and Mom. This podcast is hosted by Laura Michael and Madonna Lawindi. None of the views expressed during this recording are the official stance of the Coptic Orthodox Church or its hierarchy. These are our personal opinions, collective experiences, and organic discussions on selected topics. If you'd like to reach out with any questions or comments, you can reach us at RaisingUpCops at gmail.com.